0: No pre show this no week. No pre show. Radical. I, I refuse to stick to a formula. We're just going to start the show. This is an unplugged experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm unplugging right now, Wes. Ooh. Watch out. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 160 for August 30th, 2016. <laughs> Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's getting ready to go back to school. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. It is that time of year, it really Wes. Is. And the show, And the show has actually, so far, not gotten too cooked out during the summer. Ooh, We've made it. We'll see. There's still a few weeks left that could get hot, but we did good. Coming up on this week's episode of the Unplugged program, a couple of big open source projects that are close to my heart just got a big update. We'll tell you about those. Uh, then there's been a topic going on. Binary versus text. What? What? Yeah, we'll get into that. Also, there is an open source project that is beating Canonical to the Convergence Punch. Something we've talked about before, and they've got a big announcement. We'll cover them. Purism's in the news again with some interesting restructuring. And, oh, those of you with Skylake Systems, I've got some good news for you. About time too. Also, we'll look at some problems potentially with Steam OS. Talk about that a little bit in the show. And Mr. Wimpy. Has himself a brand new device. A new mobile rig. He's gotten, you won't believe it. You're not going to believe what he's gotten Ubuntu Touch on next. Stay tuned. The fifth thing will blow your mind. (laughs) 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 All right, Wes. Get ready for it. It's time to bring in our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Greetings. Hey oh, no, <laughs> Greetings, greetings. <laughs> hey. Hi, it's greetings, greeting. Hello, what a
1: beautiful cacophony.
0: Something. Greetings. It's not quite that, but it is something. Hello, hello, virtual lug. It's actually uh, great to have you here today. So let's start with some great news from uh, Jonathan over at OpenShot. OpenShot 2.1 is released. A new, uh, a new release also comes with a, a pretty new, uh, intense video. Did you see this thing?
1: Yeah, it is intense.
0: It's super like boom, 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 feature, feature, feature. I kind of good for him. It shows off some of the features. So I actually, I like it. It now uh, has new waveform support, which... Uh, Look at that waveform. Yeah, you really got to get an idea of it right there. So there you go. Uh, yeah, it's actually pretty neat. New animation features, transparent image sequences, powerful keyframe support, multiple layers. You can really actually do some pretty cool animation. Yep. And they have a video that demonstrates that. Stability and performance improvements are also in throughout. OpenShot now officially has waveform on audio clips. So like, if you have a video down there, you'll see the actual formation of the audio, and there's, you know almost quite quite right where to cut. It's it's That's a nice. very useful editing tool, and it's something that uh, a lot of other editors have done and. Um, Kind of nice to see this feature come back into OpenShot. There's also new snapping support for the timeline, which is something that Apple kind of pioneered, I think, in Final Cut Ten, or at least popularized it. And it's interesting to see that uh, OpenShot's integrating that. And it actually is a pretty good feature. Also, now users can customize all of the keyboards, shortcuts, and stuff. that's nice. Mm Our users will appreciate that. And the new tutorial system's in there. So it just pops up little uh, little pop-ups along the little things with friendly messages telling you what's to do. Not like Clippy at all, guys. It's not like Clippy at all. Mm -hmm. But there's – and I like this kind of humble note here. We still have a few bottlenecks on performance, and we plan on addressing those soon. We targeted the very slowest parts of Lib OpenShot and made some dramatic improvements in speed, especially on some filters like brightness and saturation. Lots of other nice improvements. So that's a wow. new version of OpenShot, and uh, just sort of side note, comes with an app image. Hey. Yeah. Uh, then my favorite editor on Linux, if you don't need to do major stuff, or say you want to move something from one container to another container, or you just want to take a clip of something, I, I always pronounce it a- AvidMux. I'm not quite sure if that's the pronunciation.
1: Yeah. I, you know, A-B-I-D-mux, Avidmux, DMUX, yeah.
0: AvidMux. Version 2.6.13. dot it's
2: called so. AvidMux. Sure, yeah, sure. That works too. Sure, why Let's not? It's demux. Yeah. It's not AVI a- because demux it demuxes the streams.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought. It was AVI yeah. a- demux. Demux, that could be AVI demux. I actually like that a lot. Yeah, I think that's actually exactly what it's it is because you can decided. demux. And so this is really nice, especially if you have, say, a, a hardware device that. Uh, can't play MKV files, and you huh. just want to take the video out and the audio out and put it into an MP4 container, and you don't want to re-encode the video or anything, this mm-hmm. is great for that. If you want to just clip like a moment of, a, of your favorite movie, you can throw it in here and, and do an in and out. seems like there's, a, like, especially with these new features, there's a lot of low-hanging
1: fruit that you can get done with this.
0: Yeah, man, and I think this is really sweet because they've added a bunch of great features uh, for uh, Linux, and guess what else? Also being distributed via an app image.
1: Wow, app image is, uh, mm, taking off?
0: I guess. I guess. I've actually heard there's a flat pack for OpenShot that isn't installing under Fedora right now too. Ooh, mm-hmm. oh. Both of those
3: already had app images before this release. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's kind of interesting that they both chose to go with AppImage. It is a it is a, a three horse yeah. race,
1: officially. Some uh, posts about you know developer experience in deciding that and where the different challenges lie for each format.
0: Yeah, I would like I to. I mean, see OpenShot
3: that already had an app image before either Snap or flat packs were released at all, and there's actually an interesting thing because uh, app images are something I've been looking for more commonly because it's there's like a few problems like if you install the latest version of Flowblade, you'll get a problem with the uh, dependencies and libraries that Kaden Live have. So hmm. like they, they even have a note on their on their tutorial about the flowblade flowblade issues. So if you, if there was an app image for it, it would work. Hmm. Oh, so I see. It's actually it's actually kind of interesting that these uh, these video editors are having releases so close to each other. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I was also reading about Flowblade Blade today too. One big awesome day for the community. Yeah, I I okay. Now let's uh, let's take all of that and uh, douse a little uh, a little uh, little pee on it. A little, little bit of pee here. Ooh, yeah, in our punch. So this is over uh, from Liam at uh, Gaming on Linux, and I, I wanted to feature this just because I've I've. I've heard this from a few now, and I don't really know what to make of it. Maybe you guys can help me sort this out. Uh, I ditched SteamOS in favor of a normal Linux distribution for my gaming. Recently, I sat with my son and wanted to play a point-and-click adventure game called Putt-Putt with him. SteamOS needed to restart to update. So I did it. Just flashed to a black screen after that. We waited quite a long time to see if anything happened, but nothing did. After rebooting, the system was completely broken with another black screen. I tried everything I could find to fix it. That was the final nail in the coffin for my time with SteamOS. I don't have time to deal with such a breakage, especially not when you're dealing with, like, a console experience. Mm-hmm. Because my ps 4s had problems before, so SteamOS certainly isn't alone in having issues. But the difference here is massive. On the PS4, I'm able to reboot into some sort of safe mode and essentially redo the PS4 operating system. All achieved with the controller without any terminals, no resorting to keyboard commands or anything of the sort. My other issue is, honestly, I feel like Valve themselves are doing very little... For SteamOS to progress it into anything or something. Other than driver updates and security fixes, they don't seem to be doing anything with it. They're not even really talking about it anymore. I later, I later set up Ubuntu Mate, and within about an hour, I was running solidly with Steam, and everything was dandy. For someone like me, with whom Linux is the norm, SteamOS is no better than a normal desktop distribution with Steam installed. I still believe SteamOS has its place, though. On pre-built machines, of course, it's much easier. Uh, and of course, it does help promote Linux gaming, and it helps people that say there's too many distributions. There's an answer for that, but it just doesn't seem to be a good fit for regular Linux users. I'm not too surprised by that particular take, but I'm a little—I I kind of also echo his sentiment. Like, what the hell is going on with SteamOS? Yeah,
1: exactly. There's not—I uh, mean, when they launched it, I feel like you could get away with it being kind of minimal. But now that in theory it should be maturing or getting better, there's not that much of a value add, right? Like, if they were doing stuff like atomic updates to the, the core operating system or like some sort of like more console like safe experience then i could really see selling it but if it's just gonna have their runtime and start steam on load then that's pretty easy to replicate if you're linux user
0: and pretty boring too mm-hmm. like where's the innovation there exactly yeah i i wonder if anybody in the mumble room is a steam os user do they have any take on this I'm going to have to try to set up a SteamOS machine and give it a good solid yeah, take. Yeah, I really haven't tried it since it first came out. Yeah, I haven't really found it to be super necessary, and I find it to be more interesting what some of the distributions are doing to make Steam work better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make I, one uh, Steam box, one Solus box? Gaming on Linux.com, back, but I will have a link in the show notes, too, if you want to check that out. So I'll follow that story. I don't know what's going on. There's also been some, some review coverage, whatever you want to call it, recently, over at PC World by uh, Chris Hoffman, and he... He calls it out. He says, broken promises, games that never made it to SteamOS and Linux, announcements that were uh, promised, but there was never really any delivery. He goes down a list of things like Batman Arkham Asylum, Street Fighter, um, Total War, Gauntlet, other ones like that. that, Yeah, Project Mm -hmm. Cars is another one. Um, I I don't want to say this is uh, not working out, but at the same time, it feels like Valve's approach where they don't really get super, super... Involved in mm-hmm. this part of it is not working out. Maybe, maybe things will change with Vulcan as Vulcan right. gets wider adoption. And maybe
1: there's like some you know pushes going on in the background that we don't get to see, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it.
0: Yeah. So there you go. That's our Valve update. If you guys out there have an experience with it, Steam OS or otherwise, let us know. Let us know. Leave a comment wherever you watch this, or go over to the contact form. So you tried out Maru OS, what mm-hmm. was it, like a month ago or I so? Think so? something like that. And that was, it's a Debian, you put it on your Nexus device, and then when you hook your Nexus device up to an HDMI display or whatnot, you get a full Linux desktop, yeah. right? Yep. Did you see the news that they are going fully open source and they're going to expand to additional devices? Like, yeah, that is pretty exciting. They are really kicking it up, and I'm glad to see that they have open source things
1: and they've got that development rolling because before it was, it felt a little closed off, and yeah, I was a lot less interested in it if it yeah. wasn't going to really be open source.
0: Yeah, interesting too that they're still focusing on the Nexus Five, which just got ditched by Google. Yes, so it did. Kind of ed- never never been a better time to find a new use for that. And here's the GitHub page. Look at that right there! They got it all uh, out in the open. Uh, they're using Debian, uh, LXE, and uh, of course uh, AOSP. But the devices that they want to—they have some of the devices they're going for are like the Moto G. They're going—they're going to try it on the Moto G. There's some LG devices they want to try getting this working on. Of course, people are throwing in for the 6P. Uh, nice, yep. There's some devices they're having a hard time with right now. Like uh, I think there's something blocking the Nexus 5X. But the Moto G, second gen, that is already planned. The LG G3, already planned. G2, already planned. And the Nexus 6P is planned. They just, and the 6 are planned. And the 7, the, the tablet. Ooh. The ta- now, now with the tablet. The tablet, I could see. You're really getting my interest. Mm-hmm. This could be extremely interesting. Now, when you used it. I mean you had some you spent some time with it. if they if they expanded to some other devices, or say you replace that nexus, which spider, I am going did you to crack it? Yes, it is cracked. Oh,
1: it's a darn shame. That is a bummer. Wow, you made it a long time though. I know. It's gone a long time. I'm kind of waiting I want to see what these new HTC nexuses look like in the fall here. Yeah. But we'll see if I can wait that long. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good So for I definitely am about out. to ready to uh you know, try out some more things on here now that it's kind of yeah. not so pretty anymore.
0: Yeah. Five of those not the fastest it device. It is not no, but how was performance when you tried it?
1: Uh, it was fine. Uh, I had some I had some problems, and they were at the time in the FAQ was talking about how some people had problems with the Bluetooth mouse. I had I encountered some of those, but um, otherwise, like the window performance, using the terminal, pulling up a web browser, all that worked just just andy, hmm. which was nice. And so I'm excited that the code is out there. It'd be cool to play with this. Maybe you don't want Debian. Maybe you want to have it behave slightly differently. And if you can, you know, especially for people who are more familiar with the Linux desktop having like a a code base that kind of touches that as well as the Android system I think will be nice
0: look at them just uh continuing to chug along and I wonder I'd love to know more about their uh their plan so if they uh if they hear this and uh, want to chat on the show, We'd love uh, reach out at Chris Elias on Twitter. Let's talk some more. While we're talking about mobile, let's talk about our friends over at Ting. Go ting. to linux.ting.com to take advantage of the unplugged discount and support the show. You're going to get $25 off your first device or service credit if you bring a device. This is great, too, because they have a GSM and CDMA network, and your average Ting bill is going to be 23 bucks per device. And you're going to get a $25 service credit. So that's cool. They also have an early termination relief program. If you're in one of those crappy monopoly contracts, you can get a little help from Ting to get out of that. Start by going to last.ting.com and then check out how much you would save. Ting is really mobile that makes sense because it's just you pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. It's $6 for a line. That's it. Uncle Sam takes his his cut, and it's going to vary depending on where you live. Absolutely. Like he do, Wes. Uh, He sure does. Like he do. He do. (sighs) But, you know, that's going to vary. Ting so can't stop that. Ting, no. They would no, love to, but they no, can't. No, they can't. So you've got you to factor that in, too. But they have a savings calculator. runs all that for you. The savings is nuts, though. My, my bill usually is under 40 bucks for three different smartphones. Wow. I love it. And they're all unlocked. I own them outright. They're my devices. I bought some of them from the Play Store. I bought some of them directly from Ting. But you know what's Honey Badger? You know, I, I'm, I'm totally Honey Badger when it comes to this kind of thing. I'm totally Honey Badger about this whole tier of devices that are just like super super easy to get into devices i I've, they've never appealed to me Wes. never like the like the like the uh, like the feature phones at 60 70 bucks right. never appealed to me and then recently I was talking to somebody about, boy, man, I just get all these notifications about every. Okay. So, full disclosure, I was complaining about Android N and talking about how I'm just getting bombarded with notifications because all my notification stuffs are all messed up now with Android N. And so somebody said to me, he's like, why don't you just get like a flip phone? And I was like, oh.
1: You're right.
0: I could just yeah, get – Because Ting's got some great deals on just like the simple, easy flip phones. Also a nice, simple way to try out Ting for a little bit. Uh, like check you know, out the, the – I love – like if I was going to do this too, the Kyocero Dura, which is a nice, heavy-duty phone, 63 bucks, no contract. Just keep that in your back pocket all day, not worrying about it. Just yeah. forget about it. I think, and when someone needs to call you, they mm-hmm, have you right there. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. for $6 a month, I mean – But you know what?
0: Look at this. They got the Moto E second gen. For fifty-seven dollars oh, wow. right now. It's cheaper than a feature phone right now. It, they got it on sale. Wow, that's the phone to get if you want to get a if you want to get a decent Android device at an unbelievable price with no contract and only pay for what you use. Linux.ting.com, fifty-seven dollars for an off or for an unlocked no contract. It also seems great if you have, like, Holy a business nuts. or
1: something and you just want, like, hey, I want to give some phones to my employees. Or you need to run this
0: one do app. Do some basic messaging, like yeah. like a Slack-type app or mm-hmm. a Telegrams or a – Or a kid or a parent. Or- oh, that's – yeah, that's a good Pokemon device right there probably. Oh, exactly. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Good point. Holy smokes. Check it out. Go, go see what Ting can do for you. They got a little savings calculator. You can try it out, see what that's like. Yeah, look at that. LTE, two different networks. You get. This is just – this is – Wow, the fifty-seven dollars for the Moto E second gen, no contract, no early termination fee, pay for what you use. Wow, that's great! Linux.teen.com, go check them out, sign up, and see how much you just might save. I don't have a lot to add to this next story, and uh, we do have a ton more to get into today. But I guess I wanted to take a moment and say, what the hell's going on with Fedora? I love those guys and mm-hmm. gals, but what the hell is going on with Fedora? Uh, and this Scott, – Scott over at at uh, Ars Technica just posted this review. Fedora 24, the year's best Linux distro, is puzzlingly hard to recommend. Even for a, gri- a great update, rollout trouble reminds us release cycles can mar a distro. And he, he just mm. touches on great points about issues that users have had post Fedora 24 release, uh, Skylake issues that Fedora 24 has had update problems, and honestly, because of all of these bumps that seem to affect every Fedora release, the eight-month release cycle becomes way too short. Uh, and then he ends up kind of talking about, you know, for the targeted audience of Fedora, they really need to understand they're competing with distributions like Arch. That's a good point, too. This is not a fair comparison all the time uh, because Arch is a rolling release, but I would be more inclined to embrace Fedora if it had either a long-term support type of release that would last several years or, or a rolling release that dealt out updates as they were ready. As it stands, Fedora sits somewhere in the middle and ends up with an often awkward update process happening all too frequently. It's possible that the new tools in DNF and GNOME software will make things easier on the update front, but for now, that's far from certain. Perfectly perfectly put into words how I felt about Fedora when I used it. It's in an awkward spot there. And they either need to like, I don't know, rebase off CentOS so that way they can support it for a while, or they need to just kind of come up with some sort of happy middle ground between rolling. Do you have no, a sense no of I agree.
1: I mean, because it's there's like a lot of things that are pioneered in Fedora and there's a lot of neat development that happens there and you get to try out cool stuff. But you're right. It often does feel like you're just stuck kind of halfway in between, and if you'd just done it a little earlier or waited a little bit longer, you could have had a solid product that like would have just stood on its own in a way that a good Ubuntu release does. But it often feels like you're
0: just somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um and I, I really I felt with Fedora 24, it was a step back in the direction. Like, they'd made so many good, progressive steps forward. And it's just such a shame when, like, there's a lot in Fedora 24 that I'm excited Mm -hmm. about, I like. Mm -hmm. But
1: overall, it's not, you know, that doesn't mesh well enough. It's not polished enough in the right places, so it's just not usable.
0: Is it unreasonable to say that also maybe the market expectations have shifted, too? Like, uh, it seems like... um, Mint kind of made a good bet when they decided to base off of an LTS for a while, then just mm-hmm. iterate on that. And it seems like uh, distributions like Ubuntu Mate are much more appealing in spots where Fedora might have been in the past. And I wonder if maybe the market has just shifted a little bit underneath them and they're still catering to something that is kind of outdated now?
1: That's an interesting – Or is that – I think there's wrong. I think there's at least a little bit of truth there. I think it certainly the market has changed mm-hmm. in – and what the, what users want, I think, just with the prominence of rolling release distros in general, it's made people kind of think about the release cycle system differently, and they are, may have different expectations. And it, I think it throws more contrast into that. Like, are you a super stable LTS distro, or are you going to give me the new stuff I want? And I understand that maybe stability isn't
0: isn't there. And I wonder if they will, if they can, if there is a way they can address this through things like flat packs, like it's sort of inferred there, and. And and whatnot. So that way, the major OS underneath getting updated as much doesn't really affect the user land applications. Because that would go that probably would actually go a long way. Yeah, because the end of the day, I think like we both agree <clears throat>
1: that, you know, you just need to be able to when, when you're in a pinch and you need your computer to do the thing you want. You want it to work.
0: All right. So does anybody disagree in the mumble room? Because I want to give them a chance to go first. Uh, Arm, go ahead. You start.
2: Well, it it, just—it seems um, whenever their release comes out, it's always followed almost immediately by, or or very, very soon before, by a new release of Gnome, which they're not. It's too late to put in, and then everyone's comparing. Well, you know, they just waited. They could have put it in, but that would mean they'd have to wait for a good sort of three months after a release which means the previous release has an extra long life cycle and then they just get hammered for the fact that they haven't released one for ages (laughs) i think it's kind of a catch-22 really they can't really win
0: hmm yeah i know people listening right now probably disagree with the assessment and so uh I guess, again, leave a comment or show up in the mumble room next week. And yeah, please join us. Because I I, I, uh, I I really want to rephrase the way I'm thinking about Fedora because it doesn't, it feels like it's... I think we'd also want to hear from people, like, if you think Fedora 24 perfectly fits your needs,
1: you're having a great time with it, you're excited about things, and you think it's... There's always that, though. I mean, there's always those people.
0: True. And the only... I, it, have to, I have to say that I agree with uh,
2: Wes in there that, you know, if it... If it's going to be like that for Fedora, it might as well just be rolling. And the
0: thing is is that Fedora does have a rolling uh, sort of um, version uh, called Rawhide. Yes, map. right. Good point. And, mm-hmm. and, of course, I also seem to remember a certain somebody – saying, oh, you know, quite a while back, you know, all uh, Linux distributions should go with the rolling release cycle. No. Right, Chris? Uh, no, don't characterize me like that. Don't get me in trouble. Uh, all right, well, I don't I don't want to make it sound like I'm attacking Fedora, so I don't really want to talk. Yeah. You have, did you want to? No, no, I, I just want
1: to. I want to agree with that. Like, yeah. I, I think we both respect Fedora a lot. I, we just want to see their releases be even better because oh, I'm yeah.
0: excited for the future. Here we go. Minimac, you're using Fedora 24 on a machine uh, that looks like it's a pretty low-spec machine. Tell me about it.
4: Yeah, I'm just using a Chromebook. It's a uh, Acer 720, and I have two of them. Uh, one is using Arch, and the other one, uh, Fedora 24. And I updated from Fedora 20, I think, 21, 22, 23, 24, and I never had problems. So this machine is working really stable and really good. No, The only or? thing... Yeah. This is normal Gnome, stock Gnome. Yeah. The only thing I have, the repository is rather small. When I have some console music application like CMOS and I have to compile it, I'm amazed that this is not in official repositories Mm -hmm. or Mumble is not in the official Mm -hmm. repositories. But otherwise, this machine is really a no-brainer. It's running stable and I never have problems with it.
0: Very nice. Thank you. A little applause is there because I know it's I I know it's not all bad. Yeah, not it's all. still a great distribution, and there's really smart people working on it. It just seems like it's not necessarily staying competitive, and they they redid this, they rebooted, and then they they almost maybe rebooted too early. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, anyways, let's move on. Maybe we'll pontificate on it at a further point after we reflect on the wisdom of the audience. I just want to give a mention out to the folks over at Purism, kind of continuing their journey. You know, they've they've been working on. Sort of making a few changes, I think, and reaching out to the community differently. And it appears to be one of those is the creation of an advisory board at Purism. Now, you remember that I had the Libre 15 reviewed it a while back on the show. We've also reviewed the Librem 13. Purism is pleased to announce the creation of its advisory board, comprised of top-tier experts from the free software community. And they list all of the uh, personalities they have on there. Together, they bring their vision with decades of experience in cybersecurity, privacy protection, and digital freedom to Purism's product development as the company continues to create products that finally address privacy and digital rights by default. Uh, I like that. I think yeah. it's probably a good thing.
1: I think so, too. I think it it adds some legitimacy and some transparency to mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, in particular, I see you know, Matthew Garrett on there. Yep. I may, you know, a lot of people disagree with him. I certainly disagree with some of his opinions. But technically, he's done a, he's done a lot of good contributions, especially mm-hmm. in the firmware kind of area. So I'm excited to see what kind of input they can give. And maybe the next time we review one of these guys, it'll be... It'll be really exciting.
0: Even better. Even better. So uh, that's uh, just sort of an interesting change. I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing a shift in the winds at Purism, and so uh, your Linux Unplug show is uh, tracking the weather forecasts you know for that. you. One little update before we uh, really jump into some of the big stuff. Uh, Mr. Wimpy has joined us to tell me about, to get me really, what this next segment's gonna is called is uh, Get Chris Super Jealous. Ooh. That's what this next segment's going to be called. Uh, but really, really quickly, for those of us with Skylake rigs, you're going to be happy to hear that Linux kernel 4.8 is going to have Skylake power management fixes included in it. That's the big new feature is Intel Skylake power management bug fix. There are also other nice updated drivers and uh, architecture improvements and some changes to KVM just hit uh, the release Candidates 4 stage and Linus himself says it looks like everything's normal and it's been a bit quieter than RC3 so hopefully uh, we're well into the calming down phase now and so we will probably see 4.8 ship fairly soon and those of you that are on Skylake systems might be compelled to update hopefully it's another chink in the armor i know i sometimes see you know new skylake systems like
1: ah just Not gonna yeah. do it yet. Skylake thing
0: has gone bomber, Yeah. yeah. And then Intel just today announced a new uh, seventh yeah, generation. Kaby Lake's coming out. Yeah. Soon. With built in 4K support. <laughs> All the headlines say that. Like, give, give me a break, right? Give me a break. So I'll tell you Can what. I'm pretty sure, though. that? Did you have a KB Lake comment? Go ahead.
2: They're gonna show it at, uh, in, at IFA in a couple of days.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, Wes, let's thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of the Unplugged program. I tell you what, DigitalOcean's got a new fancy website, which I think I mentioned a little bit ago, but it is. I keep finding little spots, little nooks and crannies that they've updated. It's pretty impressive. DigitalOcean is our go-to infrastructure on demand. When I need a Linux system to do something for me, I really, I start with DigitalOcean. And if you go there, you can take advantage of a promo code to get a $10 credit. Do Unplugged, all one word, lowercase. This is your Linux infrastructure as you need it. You could be one of the big dogs now. And what's great about DigitalOcean is the pricing is really low enough that you could just use it for basic testing or educational purposes. But the infrastructure is powerful enough and fast enough that you could just put it in production as well. I like that because when you combine that with their snapshots, their availability of application stacks and documentation, you can actually implement something that's really solid to use for a long time. Like a lot of their guides, will you tell you how to use Let's Encrypt to get HTTPS mm-hmm. going? And DigitalOcean is one of those things now where it's for me, it's faster to spin up a a a server up in the cloud, quote unquote, that is faster than some of the computers I've had in my house that are like you know five thousand dollar computers or something like just some massive system we've had for production purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, years ago, when we got like we built a couple of years ago, we built a couple of Hackintoshes that were just these monsters that rendered all our video. And of course, now they're now they're now they're just been relegated to like media PCs because it's forever ago. And it's not I don't know how much money we spent on them, but it was a lot of money for like all these processor cores and all this RAM and all this CPU. And now I can just turn it up like a dial on DigitalOcean just as a dial, Wes. Just turn it up. And they're and they and I could never match their internet connections.
1: No, I, I mean, I think it's kind of a you know, every nerd needs their their you know, outside. Separate little place that so they can run their scripts. You can have cron jobs, and now you can get it for like five dollars a month, or you can have you know you can model whole architectures. You can use their private networking. You can have their you know failover
0: IPs. There's so much. Yeah, you can do. and then you combine it with the API that is super straightforward, easy to use, but also makes. There's already – because it's so nice, there's really just so much code already written that makes it really easy just to grab some of that and just start taking advantage of it. Promo code D-O-Unplugged and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So somebody I'm a big fan of, Wes, the developer of SyslogNG, made some bold blog posts recently and uh, it's controversial, in fact, so controversial that uh, he had to make a second blog post saying, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that SystemD and Journal D are the end-all solution, but I do want to talk about binary versus text formats. What? what? So binary versus text formats, he writes, to this day I'm surprised the number of people who complain about the journal's binary storage format. Now, SystemD transitioned from a text log files to a binary file format. Uh, Having spent years working as a system administrator and after years of working with and on system NG in the capacity of the maintainer of the open source edition for more than a year, I'm increasingly puzzled – okay, the maintainer – about all of the hostility towards non-text storage formats. Wes, a binary log? What is that? What's a binary log? Uh, Sounds bad. I I I can't cat or grep that. Well, Chris, have you ever uh, have you ever, ever
1: done anything in C? Have you ever have you ever saved the the memory representation of something to a file? Because that's what we're that's really what we're talking about. Oh, we're, no. we're talking about like structured data rather than something represented as text. Uh, so but back in when, back when I was still in school, doing numerical simulations, that was something that we had to do simply for performance reasons. Right, you couldn't like, reading all the text. And if you if you imagine it, like instead of writing the number five here, you're writing the or if you're writing several numbers, instead of encoding it directly in binary, you're encoding it as text so storing it in a binary format gets away away from that and you can actually you can have more complicated data you then do need you know the ability to parse it you can't use text yeah you're tools.
0: you're dependent you're dependent on having tools that can read that binary format and that's i think the big complaint against it right that does come up a lot but in, in today's age, I'm not sure if that's relevant.
1: I mean, for individual situations, yes, there are absolutely situations, maybe in embedded systems, maybe in situ- systems where you need to administer, but you don't have as much control as you want. But in today's world where like 90% of the things you run aren't containers or virtualized or, you know, if you're doing it professionally, you have IPMI or some other out-of-band access. Right. I, it's, it's pretty rare that you don't have some way to get the tool you need or if you have control... Just make sure that your systems have the full set of tools. You know, if you are working with a binary format, you can usually then benefit from things like, well, instead of having to use grep or regex or something else, it will have, you know, you can write queries on it that can understand, like, only select entries whose date field is between these two things. You know, something like you might do with SQL or even, even, you know, something like uh, JSON objects.
0: So the the today I, that made me th- one of the things that made me think about this was I was reading a, a tweet by IBM about a course they were doing where in the course you spin up eight thousand Linux systems at once, and that's where I think these kinds of tools really matter when you have gigabytes of log files that you have to manage and things like this. And so he goes to make the he goes on to make the point that ad hoc queries on text are hard. that text is insufficient for structured type storage that grep gigabytes does not scale, On uh, that binary logs that need their tools is kind of like saying, well, yeah, but you also need grep and less and cat and mm-hmm. all those to read text. I'm, I'm of I'm of two minds of this because there's also some that would say it's not the Unix way, and that has the Unix philosophy has served us well. Of course, he argues things like wtemp and utemp are essentially this already.
1: That there are non-text things used already mm-hmm. in Unix, yeah.
0: So it's it's a it's a it's a debate that rages on in the subtext of System D, and it's watching this is kind of fascinating because I see some people now having getting you know System D having gotten out there, they're loving it, they think it's the greatest thing ever, they're talking about it, they're they're, I don't know what that is out there, I don't know either, I like might a, be being strafed here, I think we so, are uh, getting strafed by everyone, that's crazy. Uh, it's a little distracting, too. Uh, and I, I wanted to take this moment to talk about your recent home project. Systemd is playing kind of an important role in your home network now. And I'm not trying to make this an all-pro-Systemd show. No, but I, I mean, think it is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there, I have some links in the show notes to, a, to an issue right now that Debian's dealing with. Um, but I think it is interesting how it is changing things a lot. And so you set up an Archbox as your router, and you're using what to do the routing? I'm
1: Well, I'm I'm using IP tables as setting, you know, the Linux networking stack and IP tables is doing it. But to better isolate things, I wanted to try oh, that's what sticking it, was, yeah. it in a container.
0: So you set up your firewall in a container, in a systemd container. So not using like Docker necessarily or right. something like that, but using systemd built-in tools. And then in there is where IP tables is running. And, yes. Okay. And then I'm running I'm running Firehole to configure the IP tables rules for me. Huh. Nice setup, Wes. And
1: I just thought it would be interesting to, you know... There there are plenty of problems with system D. I'm not saying it's the right s- solution for a lot of things, but on system D distros, you do get like a lot more standardization now. So if you have system D, you can use nspawn to do like cheroot on steroids. You have better isolation. <clears throat> so I wanted to play with, I would played with LXD and LXC before. I wanted to play with the system D version basically. Yeah. And you, you pretty much just stick a file system under var lib machines. And then you enable the system D N-Spawn at the name of that folder. And then you have a permanent container that just runs. And then you can uh ma- you know, you can do the systemd edit and have a conf override file for that unit if you want to add extra options or you wanna change it so that like, oh, we'll add ten extra vETH NICs to it, or pass through the nick from the so I'm passing the NICs through from my host machine into it. And it's all just essentially built in. Yeah, and they have a lot of nice stuff. So if you use systemd networkd, like you can have it automatically connect the host or have like, you know, you can it'll you can have it make a bridge for you, and then it also masquerades on that so that you can have all your things on one broadcast domain and have natted access to the internet. And it just does it all automatically, hmm. which I'm not using that. I'm kind of doing hmm. it my own way, but hmm. it does make it really easy if you just want like, Hey, I'm especially for, you know, development environments or something like that, where maybe you have something that isn't quite fit with Docker or you just want to do it yourself? Now, does this uh, this system D, is is it like is it called an n spawned container? What's it called? I mean, it's a it's a Linux container. It's a set of namespaces. It, you know, the it container have, world is kind of. Murky. I need a brand name. It doesn't have the kind of flashy so branding this, that. So this this uh,
0: system D namespace container, is it running as root?
1: You can't. So the they they do run as root or root in the container is the root in the host. They are namespaced, uh, but they do support user namespaces. Uh, you have to compile that in if you're using Arch. It's not included in the Arch kernel, but right. like Ubuntu kernel, it, it's there. A lot of other distributions have it enabled. Uh, and then in that way, you will gain more security protections, as long as you're not subject to one of the various CVEs that have affected user namespace support. But right now, there aren't any, so go ahead.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and uh, Architect in the architect in uh, room is pointing out uh, Void it's arch but with less bloat <laughs> we are getting strafed yeah Gee, wow that's crazy it is an attack here it is an attack so i we were going to talk about uh, wimpy making me insanely jealous but he had a he had a mumbled uh, disconnect so we uh, we punted to the to that uh, system systemd discussion there there's also a link in the show notes about i guess a, a bug that debians dealing with right now where uh systemd requires getting kicked in the face a few times yeah. to actually get your network fully up it needs multiple restarts until the network fully starts oh yikes yeah and <laughs> he starts with hi this is a monster but relax, because its severity is minor. Huh. <laughs> at least it's, there's a workaround. But there, so it's, 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 it's interesting to sort of be this far into 2016 now and look back at what a wild ride shit sandwich yep. the system detransition was and to see there's some interesting things. Like I guess the last person I thought to come down on the binary log debate would be this one of the syslog NG maintainers. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I just didn't expect that as somebody who's used uh, syslog ng I find it interesting. Yes, I know Wimpy's back. So we'll get now into the uh, segment where uh, he, gets me, he gets me super jelly. I want to mention if there was anything we just talked about or any of these concepts that you feel like you're a little rusty on, Linux Academy might be the platform for you. Could be the place you need to go to try out, maybe uh, expand your knowledge set a little bit, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That's the URL you go to to support this show and learn more about them. They've got labs that will really give you hands-on scenarios, video courses, lab servers that will spin up as you need them and you SSH into them, which I think is pretty great. They have learning paths that put you right down a specific path of learning. So say you want to get into this network management course, it's definitely the way to go. If you want to get into OpenStack or Azure or AWS, they also have courseware on that. And of course, all of the essentials, around Linux. Check them out at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, a platform built by Linux users, mentors, instructors, and of course developers who came together to try to really promote the Linux platform. That's one of the things I don't think I mention enough is when they first became a sponsor, I had a conversation with Anthony who runs Linux Academy. And he's like, yeah, we've watched Jupiter Broadcasting, and we love that you are promoting Linux through the podcast. This is a platform that we think can help promote Linux by training people, getting people to become experts on it. And they've built a real amazing platform to do it. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So on and off, we've discussed uh, ButterFS, ZFS, XFS, which XFS happens to be Wimpy and myself's kind of go-to like, laptop, desktop, trustworthy file system. And William is uh, somebody who often chimes in on this conversation. He's, he follows this stuff pretty closely. He's got a good head on his shoulders about it. And he teased me before the show about uh, B-cache FS, and he, this was how he got me. He says, I think it might already be better than ButterFS. So, William, what is B-cache FS, and why is it already looking so hot? So B-cache FS is a
3: second take on you know the ButterFS concept of using copy-and-write B-trees for storing your files in your file system. So Bcache, as the block device caching mechanism, was already built using trees as a way to store the cache blocks on the cache SSD before it would write them out to the hard disk or as a temporary place, sort of like the L2 arc on ZFS, where you mm. use the SSD as a hot read cache so it could access hot data quickly. Um, and he turned that concept from just being this Btree block caching uh, thing into a full POSIX file system. So he added extra operations that could be performed on the cache device. And what's great about this is he already had this stable B-tree technology and the stable transaction system. And then when he rolled into a file system, the basic POSIX features are already pretty stable. That's very performant out of the box. It doesn't have all the features that ButterFS has yet, but they're on the roadmap. And there's already stuff that's coming up, like encryption is basically done. So if you wanted to roll a file with encryption built in, that would work. Compression also works, but there's no accounting yet. So while the data will be compressed on disk and you'll have faster reads and writes, you won't necessarily gain anything in terms of extra space on disk. So if the data actually takes less space to store, it'll still count that as though it's the uncompressed size. Hmm. So you won't gain any space savings necessarily, but you'll gain the performance savings.
0: Huh. And I, uh, you're using it on systems right now and in production? Yeah.
3: Or? So on my laptop right now, I'm using it. It's been stable for over a month. I'll say overall, the latency seems a lot better. Those small random rights have performed much better than what I was using butterfs. in the past. Random rights, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, cool, yeah. very nice. Um, so, William, will you be like our uh, bcachefs uh, correspondent? <laughs> yeah,
1: sure, <laughs> Let man. us know how it goes. This might be shallow, but it's uh, yeah. it, butterfs almost feels a little tainted now, and so uh,
3: it's it, a little tainted. It, yeah. It's nice
1: that there's something you know, even if it's just a fresh I mean, name. It's like ah, maybe this one will, will Butter be a little better. Somebody
3: runs butterfs on four point seven. I'm still hitting bugs every day.
1: Yikes. Hmm. okay
3: i'm able to trigger panics on some of my machines and so going to bcash FS, where i have yet to hit any panics under similar workloads <laughs>
1: you're pretty pleased amazing. about that i'm sure
3: and the fact that it's very fast even compared to butterFS, is amazing you know he's claiming x4 speeds and i would say from what i've seen that's probably about correct
0: impressive wow
3: wow uh the only downside is that there's no stable disc so prepare to reformat every couple of months
0: oh yeah so that's oh you are definitely in the early adopter phase then right now
3: so he's trying not to stabilize the format too early. I think one of the mistakes uh RFS made is they tried to stabilize their format before they had their features done, so they were stuck with a really weird, wonky format. They had to work around. Yeah, okay. And one of the nice things about BcashFS is he's taking the time to do it right, so he's not going to stabilize the format until all the features are complete.
0: Nice. Yeah, and it's nice to see that as another take out there. Well, cool, William. Thank you for thank you for uh, updating us on that because I know we've we've mentioned the project in the past, and I think I've mentioned to you as a Patreon. Um, where, uh, I'll link, our yeah, I'll link that in the show notes. So I, I think speaking of impressive feats, I think Wimpy has pulled off some impressive feats to actually have a connection. Wimpy, you're there, right? You're 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 connected. Hello, this is England calling. Can you hear <laughs> Whoa. me? Hello from JP. We can hear you, Wimpy. <laughs> <Yay. laughs> You've done it, sir. You've done it. Very oh, well. boy. So uh you uh, have got my interest piqued because you know, of course, if I ever am able to jump off of Android and get onto a platform like Ubuntu Touch, I'd really like to do it on a piece of hardware that I would covet, that I would love to hold in my hand. And the uh, Meizu Pro 5 definitely caught my eye, but I've never really been able to grab the Ubuntu Touch version. I can find it with Android in various places. It's It's got a fingerprint sensor with a hardware home button. It's got a 21 megapixel camera, curved edge glass. Uh, a real Samsung uh, processor, not a MediaTek processor. Nice. It just looks like a, a great piece of hardware, but always running Android. And I, my understanding was wimpy that if you got one of these devices with Android, you might not be able to install over-the-air updates for Ubuntu Touch. And so I'm wondering if perhaps you may have an update for the group to share with the class.
4: I do. So I bought uh, a Meizu Pro 5 that came pre-installed with Flyme OS, which is Meizu's own Android spin.
0: Flyme, F
4: L Y M E. Yeah, I, I'm I'm reliably informed that it's pronounced Flyme. Yeah, okay. Flyme. I, I don't know. It could be Flim. Or, Based on
0: Android uh, five five <laughs> one. Okay.
4: Yeah. Um. And uh, long story short, it is now running Ubuntu. Which, and everything's working, including oh. over the air updates nice. so it is possible to take that Android platform and run Ubuntu on it. What was the and key
0: was it was it because you were able to get it with an unlocked bootloader? what was the what was the secret okay. sauce that made it happen?
4: None of them ship with unlocked bootloaders unless you get one that's actually running Ubuntu, in which case you can unlock the bootloader on the ones that come shipped with Ubuntu. The ones that come with Flyme have locked bootloaders. The key is somebody who was on the beta program for my um had a daily build and that did have bootloader unlock capability. Oh. So the trick here is you can only flash that build on what are the known as either the global or international versions of the firmware. So either you know for sure you're buying a device which has the global or international firmware, or it is possible. I have learned because I've done it, <laughs> it actually modify the Chinese firmware to appear to be okay. international. And uh, this is this is just so you can flash the global firmware over the top of the Chinese firmware. It's this particular beta build that allows you to unlock. So you make it an international firmware. You then flash this beta firmware. Then you can use Fastboot just to unlock the bootloader. Nice. From there, you flash Twerp onto it, and you can then install Ubuntu in one of two ways. But the easiest way I've found is some nice person has actually made a Twerp backup of OTA11 for the Meizu Pro 5. So you just download that, stick it on an SD card, restore that. That then boots into Ubuntu, but you've still got the Twerp recovery. And the problem with that is, if you then say do OTA updates, it doesn't apply the OTA update. So you then go back mm. to the fast boot, flash the Ubuntu recovery for the which you get from GitHub, and at that point you then have a fully Ubuntu Pro five. You can then get the OTA updates and everything works as you'd expect. So you've got wow.
0: you've got a beautiful camera, fingerprint sensor, and USB C all work right.
4: Yep. Um, And the fingerprint reader and, yeah, all the the bells and whistles. Do you notice
0: a big performance difference between your previous Ubuntu Touch hardware?
4: I do, yeah. And so considering I was using the Meizu MX4, which was previously, you know, the best you could get, there is a significant difference. So uh, the models that shipped with Ubuntu were, so there's two versions of the Pro 5 uh one that comes with 3 gigs of ram and 32 gigs of internal storage Ooh. and one that comes with 4 gigs oh. of ram or 64 Ooh. gigs of storage all right all and right the ubuntu versions only came in the 3 gig 32 gig flavor but uh i'm 99% certain you could get this to work on the um, on the 4 gig 64 gig version well and i'm i'm half tempted to try it um so yeah, uh, it all works perfectly well, and I've I, I spent yesterday evening, you know, unlocking it and flashing it, and I've had a little bit of a play today. But the connectivity problems I had, as you will remember, I'm connected via shortwave radio. There is a problem there somewhere. In fact, there's still a problem now. I'm looking at about four packet loss somewhere between mm. you and me. Mm. Um, but uh, the way I'm connected at the moment is my Pro 5 running Ubuntu is connected over 4G and I've <laughs> turned on the hotspot on the ah. Pro 5 and the computer's now using the Pro 5
0: it lives. as its hotspot it lives. and there we
4: go. So That's I'm fantastic. So I'm to you through the Pro 5. Wow.
0: So this seems like a pretty great Ubuntu touch hardware. The only problem is I'll be honest, that sounds like it was a lot of work to pull all that off.
4: It was once you know how to do it, it's really straightforward
2: hmm. yeah, um, okay,
4: <laughs> but the thing is is that all the information in order to do it sort of spread over lots of different uh, exactly. places and pulling that together took a couple of hours of reading yeah. once I'd read it and understood the theory of what I was going to do, <laughs> actually doing it didn't take that long um, so uh, I'll, I'll put uh, I'll post a link in the chat room because i've there is one is Ask Ubuntu page which does link to all of the right places, but you do have to sort of read further in all of those links to actually oh. piece it all together. Is everything yeah, not the,
0: working oh, hardware yeah. wise?
4: No, it all works. Wow. Everything's working. Um, I know a so, good yeah. a good
1: guide makes a huge difference, especially when you're like, "Well, I'm going to take this image I downloaded off the internet and flash it to
0: my phone, and uh, here's hoping for the best." Yeah, yeah. What yeah. about uh, what about battery life?
4: Well. Um, This I finished I last charged yesterday about this time so about full 24 hours ago Uh, it was off charge all last night Uh, um, I've done some development on it today so I've been updating my apps and I've been installing them on this and testing them on this let me just look at the battery profile Mm -hmm. and let you know where it is so there is after 24 hours there's 21 percent charge remaining and I'd say for 50% of that time it's been in active use. Hmm. Yeah, so... And it
0: is uh, pretty... It looks like it has a pretty decently uh, high-powered charger, too,
4: so it charges pretty That's quick. nice. Yeah, yeah, it's got um, quick charge and all of that good stuff. And like hmm. you say, it's USB-C as well, so... Uh, it sounds like almost I've, an I've uncompromising
1: plunked. experience.
4: Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I've, I've been sort of changing some of my habits in order to use uh, Ubuntu Touch... And one is, you know, there are Spotify clients, but they're not quite like Spotify. You know, they do use Spotify, but the interfaces are a bit limited. There's another thing called Cloud Player, which is very good, but I have no idea where it's getting its music from. I've not looked at the source Mm. yet. So (laughs) I've put a 200 gig micro SD card Pro 5, and I'm going to put my entire MP3 library on it and sort of revert back to listening to music that I have locally, um, you know, whilst I figure out how I'm going to sort out, you know, music and podcasts and all of that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm looking at it now. geez, it looks like it just supports all of the bands. I will have the tech, the, the full technical specs in the show notes, but uh, yeah. pretty much all of it's the LTE frequencies and
4: uh, GSM ones yeah. as well. Yeah, and it's um, dual SIM as well. So you've got the option Ooh. of either having two SIMs in it, or a SIM and an SD card. That's pretty nice.
0: Yeah, it's got a 3,050 milliamp battery. That's pretty respectable.
4: Mm. And it has, a, it has a 4K video camera on the damn thing, too. Yeah, which I think is something ridiculous, like 120 frames per second or something. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, this is really it's, great. It's a, yeah, so in terms of hardware, this is a genuine replacement for my Moto StyleX that I was using with Android. In terms of the screen size and its capability, now just some of the gaps in the apps need filling. Mm. And I've been working on my own apps this weekend to sort of improve them and sort of bring them up to um, a better a better level. So I've I've got two two in the work two published and another one that I'm working on, which is a new version of Pocket Casts.
0: I uh, it looks like it's a 2K camera is what it is, which is actually pretty great. It could do mm-hmm. 2K at 30 frames a second or 1080P at, at 30 frames per second, and it also has uh, pretty nice uh, optics on it for a camera phone. Dang, wimpy. Yep, you officially made me jealous. Yep. So uh, I see the issue is is I would, um, oh, I would, I would need like a good. Do you have any of those links handy that I could maybe look at to see if it'd be possible for me to pull this off? Because I'm not, I'm not like, this isn't like a super... Chris, no good with the phones. Well, I've done a little bit of it, but uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't feel super comfortable with it.
1: Intro discounter I mean... I guess if it's not my main phone, it's not as risky. Yeah.
0: I, if I still had my you Nexus. you to call for help. <laughs> who are you going to call?
4: Call Wimpy. <laughs> yeah, well, very yeah, nice. I'm just, I'm just, here we go. Here's, here's the article. Hang on a second. Mm, perfect. Yeah, I would love to throw that in the show notes, too. So that's the ask Ubuntu topic and read through that thoroughly show notes. Yeah. So the first bit changing the region, that's only required if you don't have a device that is international stroke global. Um, the unlocking the bootloader piece is simply once you've unlocked the bootloader, you flash twerp, which you can just do from fast boot, that's straightforward. Um, you then use, um, that then you flash, uh, that at your, you put the update for this um, beta version in the root of the internal memory and Meizu will automatically pick that up and flash it for you. You mm. can do that the Android. Um, and it's just a case of um, then restoring the... the twer- I used the twerp backup of Ubuntu OTA 11 because that was the least thing about. Um, and then you flash the Ubuntu recovery. So... Once you know what the steps are, it's quite repeatable and even the first bit, which is if you've got an international model and you need to patch it to be a global version, I did go through those steps even though I didn't need to do it because I was interested to see what they would be because you can only get the 4 gig and 6 4 gig 64 gig variant from China, so that's almost certainly not going to be an international version. And that's actually quite trivial once you know what to do. Hmm. So, um, yep, it is doable if if you've got the time to actually read it and feel comfortable. And as I said to you last week, you know, I wasn't prepared to spend the money unless I was sort of assured of some success and it has been successful.
0: I love it. I love it because now I've lived vicariously through you and and you know, those new iPhones are just around the corner. It's like, look at those, look at this thing. This, This is what I want right there. That's really nice. Wimpy. So the, uh, the phone is uh, – You're. I think you are probably going to be one of the more interesting people in the Mumble Room to follow when it comes to, like, trying out this particular technology yes. because this is something that I want to switch to I as soon as I to. can. But i am mm-hmm. just uh, – I watch this. I don't know. This seems like a lot of steps. But you're making it seem like it's really close. So I'm really I'm. – I'm glad you were able to get connected and share that with us because – I think it's going somewhere. I think it's actually going this somewhere. This is exactly the kind of mo- momentum and usability and real-world experience. So I'm really excited to follow where you go with it, Wimpy. So I hope you keep us posted down the road. Will do. Will do. Thank you, sir. Also, uh, congrats real quickly while you're still here on the uh, announcement that uh, ByteMark is uh, sponsoring infrastructure for the Ubuntu Mate project. That seems like hey a big milestone. So uh, congrats to you and yeah, the project. Thanks for that.
4: Yeah, thank you for covering that. It is. It might seem a bit dull to people on the outside that's a huge deal for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. or will make a massive difference in how we can uh, channel the crowdfunding money to development projects and ByteMarker. Well, not just Ubuntu Mata, you know, they've been sponsoring Debian and Cody and LibreOffice and many other projects for years and years and years. And their beliefs uh, and attitude towards open source is very much aligned with probably everyone listening to, uh, listening to this now. Um, you know, they... Find a way to give back in the way that they can, based on uh, what they have available, and you know, relieve pressure points on projects with regards to hosting. I've got a, a effectively free access to their entire infrastructure platform wow. at no cost. I've been encouraged to do whatever I want. To <laughs> that is it.
0: exciting. What?
4: And the the original specs of some of the servers that they pinged at me were just like massively over what we needed, and it was like, okay, that's amazing, but we. T- we don't need something with, you know, 160 gigs of RAM. <laughs> it was quite amazing. Woo! But, yeah, they're they're a, they're a cool fit. No, I'm really pleased. It's nice. Just like Entroware, it's nice to be associated with, you know, um, other organizations that share your outlook and your beliefs and ByteMark certainly mm. are in that camp. Uh, absolutely.
0: I love hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. That's great news. That's really cool. So uh, that's that's kind of probably the perfect spot to wrap it so. all up. Thank you, Wimpy, for uh, sharing that with us. Thank you, everybody, in the Mumble Room, for joining us this week. I really am glad. It's a it is not always easy to find the time, and so we really appreciate it when you set that aside all to join us. It, it does make all the difference. You can join us too. Go to the JB Live chat room. Do a bang mumble in there. Get the server address. Pass an audio check. You're pretty much good to go. It's easy peasy. It's pretty easy. Live times over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And don't forget the RSS feeds. You don't have to worry about any of this crazy live shenanigans. You can just listen on demand like a good podcast is meant to be. Whatever you like with that feed. Thanks for listening. See you back here next week. Picturing Wimpy uh, during that episode, like in mission control, scrambling to like, get the connectivity back online with the satellite, which could be crashing into He's orbit. like a, <laughs> holding two wires together. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. <laughs> it was like intense moments there. Somebody yelling downstairs,
4: Louise, are you on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> Stop streaming.
0: <laughs> there was just a thread in our Linux uh, started 19 hours ago, is bleeding edge unstable, considering Arch. And I, I actually. I think it's that's not the right question. It's not that it's unstable. It's that there could be a high velocity of changes. And I think those are yeah, two I, separate things.
2: Yeah, it's more, is it un, not unstable? Is it ready for something like a production environment? And probably not with all the changes that happen. And, and sometimes there's a regression. But I mean, it's, it's not that obvious. But the thing for me that the Manjaro wins hands down over anything that, Antegros has done, uh, sorry, Antigros and or Arch has done, is the Man- Manjaro settings part, their own settings tools, they are brilliant. There's a kernel one and it just comes with every kernel, one-click deployment, one-click on install, As when you reboot, if it doesn't work, you can boot back into the old one, it's just all in a nice little GUI, um, and it tells you which ones are the stable ones, which ones are the recommended ones, and then all of the proprietary drivers are just a one-click GUI. That's the easiest thing I've ever seen. It works flawlessly for me on every machine I've tried it on
0: hmm so yeah I th- I'm reading through the chat room right now Rika says he'd attribute the stability to Arch since Antigrose only modifies a small subset um, there's also some other good feedback in here that it's kind of worth mentioning uh, JM says uh, that I live on the edge but I like that uh, Rahim123 says that uh, I would say that Manjaro doesn't actually test or fix Arch problems but rather it acts as a very effective buffer when Arch jumps the gun and lets major new buggy releases in uh that's interesting. That's a very interesting point. And that is, I think, a better way to sort of frame the the way to look at Manjaro right there is that Manjaro buffers you from when Arch jumps the gun. OK, I think that's a super valid point and almost could be a, a game changer right there. I was thinking about something you just said, though, uh, and that was I think it was something to the effect of there's a, since there's a lot of changes coming in, it doesn't suit it to be in production.
2: Well, I mean, I don't mean production. I mean, if it's somewhere, you know, if if you're somewhere that's running Red Hat and you're going to run Red Hat for the next five years with no changes, yeah, or, yeah. or you're running Debian Stable, no, this probably is not for you. See, here's Whereas- where
0: here's where I think it's kind of an interesting use case because I think if you have a dedicated IT shop and you have you have uh, systems guys that are there that are that that learn the this system and they build they build tools around this system and they work around the uh, the, the The drawbacks of the system, then I agree, something like red hat Enterprise linux ubuntu lts it's, it's great for that. but when you're somebody just to just to make this super kind of relatable let's just say it's like you're you're a startup and you're moving you're moving really fast and there's a lot of people wearing a lot of hat or there's a few people wearing a lot of hats uh, and say maybe like you know the CEO is also the i t person those people don't have time to learn the mythology of that particular Linux that's been frozen in time. And what you actually, what it feels like for those people is you're getting straddled with the mistakes, the technical debt or the things that don't work with these static releases. Oh God, that's right. This thing still has that problem. We have to, what was that fix to work around this? What do we have to do for this old version? What is, and then, and you, that's how we see it. Whereas something that is, rolling or are updated more frequently while yes there's a high velocity of changes a good portion of those changes especially these days are fixes or improvements and it's funny because I, I never would have had this position three years ago i was the lts person i was the centos person the debian person for my clients all the time never only in a rare instance did i roll gen tube for very specific use cases and i'll have to tell you having used obs or obs it's really at a point where um <clears throat> some open source projects get there and they're just they're at this they're this like this perfect point where they keep iterating and adding features that are just super major features like the ability to offload h264 encoding to the gpu if you have an nvidia graphics card well guess what we built that thing with an with an nvidia 960 in it Just with the explicit intention of hoping to eventually have that feature to offload that to the GPU. Well, boom, OBS lands it, and because we're on a system where we're right up to date, we got the latest FFmpeg, we get the latest CUDA stuff, we get the latest NVIDIA driver, and we also get the latest OBS, that limitation... That in the past, when I have a Mac with Wirecast, I build this mythology around it of how to make this thing work, and the system doesn't get updates. It doesn't get touched because it's a production appliance which never felt good as somebody who's into technology and somebody who wants to keep their systems up to date and somebody that wants to take advantage of new production features. That never felt good. And now, with OBS on a rolling system, yeah, I'm rolling the dice that the machine that broadcasts these shows out to the internet could get an update that could change something that could totally bork it, like the ZFS bug that they have right now when your root file system is ZFS. But at the same time, I'm getting features into OBS, like one they just added recently, (laughs) which is so is so so necessary for live productions is a studio preview mode where i can preview the shot that i'm about to show on the live stream before i switch to it this is this is so fundamental that if you think about it, otherwise when we're using OBS and that's how we've been doing it, you're flying blind. You have no idea what they're actually, what you're actually about to show on the live stream. You, it, sometimes it's something that's com- completely the wrong shot, or the, or the or the the desktop window hasn't been framed properly because there was no way to know. It's good luck, have at it. Hope you set it up right and checked it real quick before you went on air. But now one of the just you know. Huge things they just changed in one of their minor releases is studio mode. So now we can switch to a shot to before or after we know it's ready to go, which is which makes us look way more professional. And it's 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 like it's a fundamental production feature, really, that all the proprietary solutions have too. And I I love that we have it basically the day that comes
4: out.
2: Yeah, no, that that is. I know that I've followed some of the stuff that you have said before and how. We're, Noah said that that's really saved his his butt. Sometimes when just getting the latest update, and Noah hasn't mentioned it before, I don't think. But is he? Uh, he not an LTS user anymore? Uh, I don't think he is. Yeah,
0: why well, should I should ask him about that?
2: No, no, I, I don't think I've ever heard him say why.
0: I don't think he's on sixteen oh four. Well, because he's just had so many different. I should get him to recap it. Uh, uh, rahim no, uh, one two still- three points out that uh, OpenSUSE tumbleweed has great open QA. Which could be that sweet spot. Yeah. And I really think there could be room for that.
2: The problem I've had with Tumbleweed, because I really, really wanted to go with Tumbleweed, but you ha every time there's a, a kernel change, you have to recompile all the graphics drivers and there's not a one-click deployment for that. You have to do it all the hard way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you too, part of it really is the software availability that makes it really possible to. That's a huge I think, thing. I,
2: mean, I wouldn't use Manjaro mm-hmm. if I didn't have the AUR. If it didn't if it didn't link in with the AUR, that mm-hmm. would be it, it'd be no. gone. Yeah. <laughs>